Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Activists chase after senators, including into some unusual places. And the Joe Biden legacy gets discussed on the Sunday shows. This is Vince and Jason, Save the Nation. We need solutions to the Build Back Better plan. We have the solutions that we need. We knocked on doors for you to get you elected. Mr. Manchin, would you be willing to sit down for just a few minutes with the West Virginians tomorrow or today so that we don't have to keep showing up? It's the death of 2020 Joe Biden. This is Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey, welcome everybody back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm here with my good buddy, Vince Colonnese, looking sharp as usual. Vince, a lot going on as usual. Uh, Democrats fighting it out, uh, trying to make some legislation happen while they still have a majority. Uh, what kind of stuff is going on uh, in Congress right now? Well, this this resistance to passing the broad uh, Democrat legislation of at least three and a half trillion dollars uh, at the same exact time as this uh, bipartisan infrastructure package has caused some consternation on the left, as you've pointed out. To the point that we have activists who are uh, either confronting or chasing after or just speaking to the two senators who are, who are on everybody's mind right now, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Now, I'm going to start with the Arizona senator, Kirsten Cinema, back home this weekend, uh, chased into a bathroom as the activists left the cameras rolling. Take a look at this video. Okay, I'll be back. Today, we want to talk to you real quick. Can we talk to you real quick? Hi, actually, I am heading out. The, um, right now is a real moment that our people need in order for us to be able to talk about what's really happening. We need a Build Back Better plan right now. We, we knocked on doors. We need solutions to the Build Back Better plan. We have the solutions that we need. We knocked on doors for you to get you elected. And just how we got you elected, we can get you out of office if you don't support what you promised us. We need 7 million citizenship for 7 million. We need the Build Back Better plan right now. My name is Blanca. I was brought here to the United States when I was three years old. And in 2010, my grandparents both got deported because of SB 1070. And I'm here because I definitely believe that we need a pathway to citizenship. My grandfather passed away two weeks ago, and I was not able to go to Mexico and visit him because there is no pathway to citizenship. And if we have the opportunity to pass it right now, then we need to do it because there's millions of undocumented people just like me who share the same story or even worse things that happen to them because of SB 1070 and because of anti-immigrant legislation. And this is the opportunity to pass it right now. And we need you to, we need to hold you accountable to what you told us, what you promised us that you were going to pass when we knocked on doors for you. It's not right. I'm a survivor. I'm a survivor of human trafficking. And it's because of the lack of worker protections that we don't have in the gig economy. All right, so. Kirsten Cinema can't use the bathroom without uh, having people trying to, you know, basically spread their message to her uh, in that room. It's a weird moment, actually, in American politics. It is. Um, I understand the emotions that that people have, and these are serious issues. 
you heard the woman giving a personal anecdote, but I think there's also people who have personal time. Um, you know, I, I think they probably thought she was trying to hide or something like that, but I think you can wait outside the bathroom um, and then give your story. Um, and I, I do think there are times where we have to approach uh, our elected officials and it seemed like they were doing it in a, in a calm manner. They weren't like trying to threaten her or yell in her face. Um, but that's there's a time and a place and you don't, I think everybody deserves to be able uh, to drop a deuce in peace, you know? And she was going to the bathroom. I, I just don't think that's the way to go about it. Um, mm -hmm. I, there was no way. By the way, I think, I think we just got our social media poll for those who are wondering <laughs> that, that every, every senator has a right to drop a deuce in peace. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I, I think that there is, you, there's no way that woman what she was saying, I think, was really persuasive. It could have been very persuasive, particularly talking about her own story. One woman saying she was a victim of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. There was a that was a really persuasive argument. But Kristen Cinema is not hearing it that way. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that Kristen Cinema is an open person, or Kristen Cinema is even someone who is persuadable, or that Kristen Cinema is acting in good faith. I, I don't know. We, but. Uh, I think that they had strong arguments, but just made it in, in the wrong setting. They could have waited outside of the restroom. Um, she can't hide in there forever. Uh, so I, if, if you have time, you just wait, wait her out. But I think people deserve personal time in the restroom to be able to, to handle their business sure. in there. Um, she may have just been trying to duck them, but she may have just had to go to the restroom. Um, yeah. and, I mean and I think, like I said, they had... They had good arguments. They were making persuadable, you know, they were having a, a good discussion. I think there's a way to do that. Yeah. I mean, I guess there, you know, the it's interesting to me what's happening right now is like Democrats do control obviously both houses of Congress and there's so much pressure on both Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, who we'll get to in a moment, uh, in order to pass a, a left-wing agenda. But the reality is, of course, in the United States Senate, it's an evenly split Senate. Like right now, Democrats have power by virtue of their tie-breaking vote from Kamala Harris. It is not a sweeping mandate, certainly in the U.S. Senate, uh, for a left-wing agenda. But the left sees the clock running out, and that this is their chance before midterms, which at the moment are, are looking a little bit more up for Republicans than they are for Democrats, thanks to a number of, of headwinds that Democrats are facing, and in particular, the president's polling which keeps uh, going down in really meaningful ways to the point that um, Democrat political strategists are getting very nervous about what the midterms hold. Um, so right now there's this tremendous pressure on people like Kirsten Sinema to pass all these, these left-wing priorities. And one of them of course being amnesty, but you know the, the parliamentarian in the Senate keeps on saying you can't do an amnesty as a part of a reconciliation package. It's supposed to be budget adjustments in a reconciliation package. This is when um, a simple majority in the Senate can pass legislation without, you know, and, and bypass any threat of a filibuster. But it's, you know, again, that's what you're hearing in this video. It's that these activists are following her in and, and demanding an amnesty. Um, and, you know, she's she's serving her voters. Kirsten Sinema is like, actually serving the interests of the people of Arizona, which, you know, it might be frustrating, I think, to say somebody who's like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but this is just like in West Virginia. This is, this is, these are senators who are trying to basically keep their seats 
in the United States Senate by representing the interests of the voters that put them there in the first place. Yeah, I, I would disagree. I think West Virginia is is a whole different animal. Um, I do agree that uh, Kirsten Cinema is in a very moderate, um, I mean, light blue, if not purple state. And it's a really, um, you know, she has to try and kind of play the center. The problem with Chris, Kirsten Cinema is that she hasn't said exactly what she wants. Like, uh, at least Joe Manchin has said, well, I want 1.5 trillion, 3.5 is too much. Um, I, I want, I can't have the Hyde Amendment in there. You know, at least he has said exactly, or at least on some level, uh, the things that he wants. Kirsten Cinema has been mum and has just said, well, it's too expensive. You know, mm -hmm. um, and there are things that she said, I think the woman is correct, that she alluded to when she was running for that Senate seat to get those votes, you know, that had people like that young lady knocking on doors throughout the Phoenix, you know, uh, Maricopa County area and all that. And, you know, they want their returns. And I think that that's, that's fair as a constituent. Those are her constituents. Those are her voters. Those are the people who came out. It wasn't the Republicans who came out in large number for Kirsten Cinema. It was Democrats. Democrats across the country were excited about Kirsten Cinema. The first, uh, wasn't she, isn't she the first LGBT person in, in the Senate? Or is it Tammy Baldwin? One of them. Um, because she's, she identifies as bisexual. At any rate, there were people all over the country who were really excited about Kirsten Cinema, And now it just seems like she is obstructing without actually saying what it is that she desires um, or what it is she objects to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's really frustrating to people. Now they are conflating two different things. They were talking Build Back Better at, at one point, some of the activists that were following her around. We're talking about the, the budget reconciliation um, in addition you know, to, to infrastructure and all that. But they also are talking about uh, Arizona being a border state and uh, a state that has uh, you know, a lot of dreamers in it. And the dreamers, you, know, you and I have discussed this. I believe they deserve uh, a pathway to citizenship. They're as American as, as apple pie and as American as you and me. And I think a lot of them deserve, or I think, you know, anybody who hasn't committed a major felony deserves a pathway to citizenship. Um, and that's one of the things that Kirsten Cinema was telling those people in Maricopa County, was telling those people throughout the state uh, that she was going to be on the side of that. So I think that they have a right to hold her accountable. And that's what they were saying. I just don't like the setting in which they did it, you uh -huh. know, um, depending on how bad I have to drop a deuce, I might, I might push you out, you know, of the bathroom, <laughs> like, because I deserve my privacy in the restroom. That's for yeah. sure. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's gotten to some insane levels. That's all. And, and like, I, I felt the same way when uh, they went to Brett Kavanaugh's home recently. Uh, and I feel the same way about our next video. Yeah, as... Mitt Romney, you know, when the, when the weird MAGA people were following him around the airport, I, I just, I think that that's just, you know, unnecessary. And I, I feel the same way about our next video. Let's take a look. This is Joe Manchin uh, on his houseboat, which he docks right there in the Potomac in Washington, D.C. This is where he lives. Uh, and he was approached this weekend by a bunch of people on kayaks uh, who came to confront him uh, in order to urge him uh, to pass the left's agenda here in Congress. Take a look. Senator, this 
showing up here in boats, would you be able to get that set up for the West Virginia Duke Women's Okay, what's the best? Because we can't get into the building though. Yeah, we can't get into the building. Here, go. Just call the office to write this down. We have it. Oh, we have your number. Thank you. Senator Thank you. Thank you, Senator Thank you. We appreciate your time. Can we make that happen for tomorrow while the West Virginians are still here? If we're here, if not Monday for sure, but if we're here tomorrow, we'll do it, okay? Okay. Thank you. Two, All two, right. Eight, thank you one. so much. All right. Showing up at the houseboat. How do we feel right. about this one? <clears throat> so, I, first of all, I think uh, Senator Manchin is a scholar and a gentleman there. Um, he was a gentleman and a scholar. I don't, I don't know how the, how the Whatever uh, you want. saying goes. Uh, but, you know. He, he told them, look, come to the office yeah, uh, and, you know, we'll set up a time, we'll sit down and he's willing to sit down with his constituents, which is how it should be. Mm -hmm. um, I think that these uh, people on the rafts, they felt desperate to try to get the ear of their senator. And I think they have reason. I mean, so West Virginia, when you look at Build Back Better and the things that it deals with, West Virginia is 45th in the nation in education. 45th out of 50 states and, and Washington, D.C. Um, I think West Virginians could use uh, universal pre-K. Um, I think West Virginians could use free community college. Um, I think there's a lot of things that West Virginians need, um, even some of the climate measures, but I think there's a way to sell it. And, and I'll just say this real quick, Vince. Mm -hmm. um, actually, we don't, you know, it's a Monday show, so we don't have to rush quite as much. But I'll just say, you know, it's a hard sell. And I understand Senator Manchin's side of things because he is in the Trumpiest state in the nation. It is the state that is most devoted to President Trump or former President Trump. The one thing that I will say is having been through West Virginia, which I love West Virginia, I love the state. I, I just think it's so beautiful. It's like nowhere else I've ever been. Even, you know, when you go into Pennsylvania or into the Western parts of Maryland that are right on the border, there's just something right. about West Virginia that's different. Um, and the people there are different than anywhere in the country because coal is cultural for them. It's not just economic. It's not just about jobs. Because if you look at it, you know, from jobs, coal, you know, as much as this may offend some of my people out there in West Virginia, coal is dying. You know, when you look at since 1950, coal has, uh, coal jobs have reduced by 88% since 1950. They're not coming back. But coal to them is something different. It's cultural because it represents West Virginia. It represents that, you know, because if anybody knows anything about mining coal, which I don't know much, but I'll say this, I know it's hard work. It's mm -hmm. work where you get your hands dirty, you know, and know. it's something I saw, that- I saw, I saw Zoolander. Yeah, <laughs> it, it represents- Derek, Derek Zoolander worked those coal mines. He, he got the black lung, Pop. <laughs> right. Like, so <laughs> it's something that represents that kind of grit that West That's Virginians right. have in it. And it's like your grandfather got his hands dirty, his lungs That's suffered, right. and he did it to put food on the table. 
And for them, it's part of their cultural identity in West Virginia. It's not just a source of energy. And so I think Democrats and their messaging have to take that into account. They're like, well, look, we'll create all these new jobs. What are you, what are you complaining about? Mm-hmm. And they don't understand how central it is to, to the West Virginian identity. Um, and there's got to be, you know, people who are smarter than I am who can get in a room and say, how do we message to these people? But I, there are people who are less smart than I am who are actually messaging you know, for the Democrats and doing a very terrible job because the other elements, climate, West Virginia is very susceptible to flooding. As a matter of fact, I think it was 2016, they had major floods, 23 people died from flooding. You know, there is an argument there for in terms of, you know, the climate legislation. But there certainly is an argument on the education front and a lot of these other elements. And Joe and Joe Manchin is afraid to make them because he is looking at his immediate political future. And I understand it. But, you know, as brave as he is to face these these uh, constituents, he's got to be brave enough uh, to face the rest of the state and say, this is what I'm voting for. This is going to be best for the country. And this is going to be best for West Virginia and its future. Uh-huh. Universal pre-K will help lift West Virginians up in terms of education. I mean, you know, this we can tap into a, a broader argument about the three and a half trillion dollar spending package that Democrats want to push. I, I know that, like, obviously, Joe Manchin supports this infrastructure package. He's He was a part of the negotiation team to get sure. it passed in the first place. So mm-hmm. that's the part that he supports. What's happened, though, is that there's this ultimatum that elements of the left have created. And, and to, to include the president, President Biden has basically said, yeah, I'm not interested in the infrastructure package passing unless I also get the three and a half trillion dollar social spending package passed. Well, uh, and, well, hold hold on one one second, Vince. Yeah. I will. I just want to say this. You said at least in the beginning of the show, you said at least three point five trillion. Right. That's kind of the max. And they've also, you know, Why Biden has floated max? has floated out. That's what he said. You know, and Biden has floated out. Maybe we can go to two trillion. Sorry, so they're, mean, they're willing. Uh, yeah, they're yeah, will, yeah. They're willing to to actually negotiate this and, and get the number down. No, what um, I'm saying, what I'm saying is not I'm, I'm not talking about the agreed upon number and where it ends. What I mean is <clears throat> when you get these projections from places like the Congressional Budget Office of three and a half trillion, by the time it's actually fully spent, the, the costs uh, are sure to be likely to be much more overrun than three and a half trillion dollars. That's the point I'm making. Um, not not that that's where they're uh, not not the point at which they settle. Right. So. You know, and so then there's the, the elements here that are worth thinking about. One is like how much more federal spending on education will actually produce better results for any state to include West Virginia. I think it's a decent question. You know, look how much federal spending we've put into colleges through the years. And in the process, uh, I think diminished the quality of education nationwide. There's been a lot of great inflation. There's been dramatic accelerating costs to attend college because of federal involvement. Uh, I mean, there's been all sorts of negative things that came from what was thought of as a positive program to begin with. So, you know, will federal spending, dramatic federal spending in education result in better educational outcomes? I actually don't necessarily think that's some sort of foregone conclusion. Uh, And history has shown that federal spending has often been abused and diminished the quality of the things that it's touched um, to include college. So, 
there's that. Then there's the, you know, the obviously the coal jobs you're talking about. And you're right, coal has been on the decline. The question before Joe Manchin is, does he want to place a gun to the head of what's left of the coal industry? And I think by and large, he's saying, no, I think, you know, Virginia's do, as you noted rightly, care about coal and the industry that remains and want to see those jobs protected in a state that's been uh, hit really hard by all of the many forces that have hit so many of middle, middle America's towns for, for years, the decline in manufacturing, the decline, as you noted, in coal, uh, and the collapse of middle American cities. And certainly West Virginia has felt that and the rise in, in deaths of despair, the rise in drugs. Um, so they're trying to hold on to what they've got. And um, I think in some, I think in a strong way, you've got to respect that, that attitude in West Virginia. And so, you know, Manchin is basically doing what he can. You know, Manchin's, Manchin's not going to do anything radical. He's not going to blow up the filibuster. He's going to maintain his position of power in the United States Senate as the guy through whom all of this legislation needs to flow. Because what, we look, what we're looking at is a 50-50 Senate. And in that world, Joe Manchin is one of the most powerful people in the country, and he can use that to the benefit of his constituents. Uh, so, you know, I imagine you're going to keep seeing him being be in the middle here, that he's going to keep trying to be a, a guy who tries to achieve some sort of achieve goals for West Virginia to include things like keeping federal taxpayer money from being used on abortions. This is one of the things you mentioned, the Hyde Amendment. This is what he's trying to defend. He wants to keep the Hyde Amendment around. So. Um, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting phenomenon in politics. And it's just, I think, again, uh, a, a reaffirmation that, that Democrats, although they do have control in the Senate, they have it by the skin of their teeth at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, it's not, there's not a sweeping mandate for trillions of dollars of new money being printed. There's a narrow opportunity uh, in, in order for Democrats to pass legislation. And right now, the way to do that is through people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. So um, there, there are a lot of things um, there. I, I think what you said about education um, is, is interesting. Um, when we look at, uh, particularly with universal pre-K, mm -hmm. the benefits are undeniable. Um, and the fact that it ends up paying for itself in a lot of ways um, is also undeniable. There's a lot of research that says that, you know, the added tax revenue um, and everything, it, it actually, in the long run, ends up paying for itself. And that, you know, the learning, the social emotional learning that goes into uh, pre-K um, benefits children and gets them ready for school. And then of course, um, you know, doesn't create these imbalances. I remember actually going into a pre-K, oh, excuse me, going into a kindergarten class in Baltimore. And I remember speaking to the principal and this, this was actually a charter school. So speaking to the, you know, executive director. And I remember her saying that the difficulty of teaching kindergarten was that there was such imbalance some kids came in knowing how to read you know right and then you had kids who couldn't recognize letters and numbers or shapes or colors because they had no schooling their parents were poor this this school happens to be in the park heights section of west baltimore which is a food desert which is you know an impoverished community 
a lot of these kids came in not knowing letters, not knowing numbers, not knowing shapes, not knowing colors. Uh huh. And so then when you've got this huge imbalance where you've got five students that, that, you know, are advanced and can read and not necessarily that there's a huge gap in potential. It's just a gap in learning. Um, because some of these kids, their first time in a classroom and also just the social emotional part of it, you know, these kids who have never been in school all of a sudden have to learn how to play with other kids, have to learn right. how to, uh, you know, be in school and stay attentive for eight hours. Like it's a huge shock. And then, you know, they're having meltdowns and they're having other things where these other kids yeah. who had some sort of, you know, preschool or whatever they're, you know, they're like, what the heck is going on? I've, I've been doing this for two years already. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that creates large gaps in education and best believe that those gaps in the early going, you know, can create a point where you're going to create kids who are going to head towards, you know, head out of education, you know, yeah. once they get to high school and kids who are going to head to college. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that the argument for universal pre-K and particularly a, a hardworking working class state like West Virginia, I think there's there's just such a strong argument for it that I, that I don't see how Joe Manchin can be opposed to it. Well, let me now, let me let me inject it like a like a, a hypothetical for you and see and see what you think of it. So, um, you know, I don't I don't normally do hypotheticals, but well, I've yeah. got I did, that's the only way to do it because we don't have a federal universal pre-K system at the moment. But I could I could foresee some issues that would arise from it. So um, I agree with you in how um, in critical this educational period is. We're both fathers of young children. We've seen what it means to, to get a good education, especially from a young age. And my understanding is that the most pivotal time of education in any person's life is all the way up through eighth grade in particular. So mm-hmm. if you are educated well, by the time you get to eighth grade, it really sets you on your course for the rest of your life. Uh, and um, so those early years are really important and to lose any of them uh, is, is to a great detriment to a child. So with that all being said, you know, look, I, I can see like right now we have in the United States, pretty traditionally a K through 12 uh, public education system where government schools are available for free, meaning taxpayers are paying them uh, uh, not voluntarily, that money's coming out of your paycheck. And as a result, as the taxes you pay to your state, that becomes the money that's used to pay for the education of the children in those public schools. So it's not an impossible argument for me to say, okay, what if we tacked on a grade or two beneath kindergarten where they were actually receiving education and these weren't just daycare centers? I can see that. But here's my problem. If you have a federal system where the federal government says, okay, universal pre-K, so if the federal government's sending the checks, whoever sends the checks writes the rules, right? So the, the idea would be that the federal government would write the rules for, pre, for pre-K nationwide. And then basically whatever administration's in office at that moment, Republican or Democrat, would be fighting to basically dictate, okay, what kind of things are taught in the classroom? What kind of things are not taught in the classroom? And we would essentially nationalize one of our many culture debates, but this time with our youngest, most vulnerable, uh, first learning experience moments for, for children. And I just kind of foresee disaster there, Jason. I mean, because like, look at the culture battles we have now between left and right. If it becomes like, well, we've nationalized education pre-K and the federal government gets to write the rules about what students learn in those classrooms. Can't you foresee 
some pretty dramatic fights about what that looks like? And shouldn't we leave those things to localities? So I, I, I disagree with the premise. And, and the reason is because like with many federal programs, um, there might have to be some approval, but generally the federal government writes, like, like think of this, I'm thinking of it like welfare, for example. It used to be the federal government you would get, if you were getting cash assistance, you would get it directly from the federal government. Of course, that's not how it works. Now, the federal government writes a grant to the state mm -hmm. and then the state makes the rules. The state doles out however much they think someone uh, deserves. Um, and <clears throat> of course there's differences in each state and what they think you know, uh, someone can live off of and, and what kind of assistance they deserve. But it's really a federal grant that's given to the state. The state, of course, has to uh, qualify based on, you know, certain criteria. Right. But it's, it's not the state, the, the federal government doesn't write the rules, the state does. But there are strings attached to that money. So like, there's like work requirements, sure. for instance. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, <clears throat> I see the same sort of thing happening in this case, where the state, you know, and their education standards are going to be, you know, um, the thing that happens, you know, or the thing that, um, you know, the, the schools, the universal pre-K system is going to have to adhere to. The other thing is there are debates within our states, you know what I mean? <laughs> like we're never going to yeah. get away from right, left debate. No. We're never going to get away from that. Um, and I think with universal pre-K, you know, a four-year-old, uh, if you're trying to teach them, I mean, there, there are elements of, of social emotional learning that need to go into that. But I think a, a four-year-old is trying to learn shapes and colors and, For sure. and numbers. Yes. And, you know, of course, there may be opportunities to, to teach them other things about being a good citizen, of course, you teach them to be, you know, uh, to be nice and to not bully people and things like that. Uh -huh. But the things that the right complains about, you know, like we're going to teach them not to be racist. And, and of course, the right is like, I want to teach my kid to be racist. That's, Come you on. know, or, you know, I want to teach my kid to, you know, not like gay people, whatever it is that y'all want. <laughs> I, I'm not going to I'm not going to argue with that. But. Well, you know, that's probably not going to make it into a four-year-old. A four-year-old's not really going to get that. Now, an eight-year-old might, but a four-year-old, they're not really there yet. They're learning shapes and colors and, and uh, numbers and letters and maybe the basics of how to read, maybe, you know, two and three-letter words. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not really concerned um, with, you know, some sort of you know, what you guys call critical race theory or anything like that, which still isn't critical race theory. But I'm, I'm not concerned about that and those kind of culture debates getting into it um, at that age. I think this is going to benefit all our children. Um, and I'm, I'm a fan in most cases of universality. And I, I think that you know, it's going to benefit wealthy kids, it's going to benefit poor kids, it's going to benefit everybody in between. I just think you, 
the, I think you've got too much trust in institutions that have failed you far too often. <laughs> That's all. I like, like the federal government has failed so much at so many things. I just don't know why we want to give them so much more power. That's, well, I, I guess, guess I, I, I'm sorry. That, I mean, I, that's I get my that. underlying, that's my underlying yeah. complaint here. And, and so this idea, remember we talked about Sarah Silverman recently. She was like, you know, maybe we should split the country up. We don't have to split the country up. We have 50 States. That's already, they're already split up. Like all you have to do is stop trying to nationalize every issue. Stop trying. And this is, I'm, I'm trying to make a bipartisan point here. Stop trying to control everybody's affairs and, and let's return, return to some sense of federalism where if like you're super interested in living in a deeply blue state and you have like all these ambitions for the government's involvement in people's lives, then fantastic, do that in your state. But that's not what's happening. What's happened is it's like we've nationalized everything. And so we're trying to create federal impositions on everybody. And then we're basically trusting that it's gonna work and my argument is, how many times does the federal government need to fail you before you lose trust in it? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of states that have failed uh, people, a lot of localities that have failed people. And sometimes the federal government um, has come to the rescue. So, I mean, the obvious example, of course, is segregation, you know, where, you know, we were talking about this before we got on air and we were talking about how. Uh, you know, states and localities were doing things that were unfair. And what do we had to turn? What do we have to turn to? We had to mm -hmm. turn to the courts, mm -hmm. and we had to turn to uh, the federal government, right? To make those was, sorts of changes. So and it was an extraordinary remedy. It was an extraordinary remedy, rather right. than a commonplace one. But what's happened since then is because is it's it's become commonplace. Like the federal government's involved in everything, versus choosing those rare moments when it does need to step in to redress a true grievance. And I, and I, I also will add um, a lot of the revenue that we would have had in order to have things like universal pre-K, which I'll be honest with you, I, I, I get your argument, you know what I mean? And a lot of times, you know, this is, this is why we're friends, even though we disagree, I think you make sense. But many people who have argued against this, I don't really, they haven't made a coherent argument against educating kids at four years old and giving kids that opportunity. I think the more educated we are as a society and also other countries do this and educate their kids earlier. Yeah. The, the more educated we are as a society, it's an embarrassment how undereducated a developed nation like the United States is. It is literally an embarrassment. Can and, I ask and, you an education question, Jason? Sure. Um, do you support school choice by any chance? I know that on the left, this has been a subject of some debate, um, although things have changed a bit. Like there's on the left, it seems like there's very few people now, at least publicly, support school choice. But it wasn't that long ago that they did. During the Obama years, we saw quite a few Democrats who expressed support for school choice. The idea being like, you know, just by virtue of being a poorer kid, like you shouldn't be forced to go to the crappy public school that's in your community and that your parents should be able to bring you to a different school, a better school uh, where you get a better education. Do you, do you support that? Um, so I have to put it, I will say yes with an asterisk. Um, so here's the thing. I, I do support the idea um, that people should be able to make independent schools with independent, um, with independent uh, curricula 
I, I do support that. Like a charter um, school, you mean? Yeah, like a charter school. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no evidence, but I will, again, side with most Democrats in the idea that there's no evidence that charter schools do any better. And in a lot of cases where they've gotten rid of public schools and made it largely charter, like in the state of Michigan, the home of Betsy DeVos, it's been an utter failure. Um, But what I will say, go to the schools in Detroit, see how that's working out, see how all those charter schools are working out. Um, But what what I will say is I do, at the same time, if it's taking money and talent away from the private or excuse me the public system then i think something's broken so but i mean like a lot of these schools i mean i mean school choice even among public schools i mean like you don't want to go to this public school go to a different one um so you know, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I have to think about that more. I, okay. I haven't really thought about that, but I, I think I'd be okay with, I just don't want a situation where, you know, schools are closing because they've got like, you know, 200 people in them and everybody right. wants to go to this one school, which again, is only going to make that one school struggle more. I think what we need is more equal funding. So for example, um, research has shown that um, schools that are majority people of color, mm-hmm. and I hope I hope Gary clips this out. But uh, schools that are majority people of color, uh, school districts that are majority people of color, get twenty three billion dollars less funding than schools that are majority white. School districts that are majority white. So therefore, there's this imbalance in funding. So I, I think it's something like close to fourteen thousand dollars per pupil. Mm-hmm. in the white majority white districts and then 11,000 close to 12,000 per pupil in the majority black and brown districts that's got to that's got to fix i think that will help in well, terms of uh the education of a lot of these poor districts a lot of these schools where they're talking about school choice right. people think it's school choice is a fix I don't necessarily think that's a, that's the the right attitude. I think we can fix some of these public schools. Is that um, not a function? Is that discrepancy not a function of the tax base? I mean, of course, of course, right? Yeah, but we I think we've got to find other ways to fund our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that <clears throat> there are ways in which uh, we can better the schools that are struggling rather than taking students that we think are talented out of them because we think they deserve a better education and leave some kids in the failing school. I think what we can do, of course, a lot of those schools have less experienced teachers. Um, I think we can change the way we pay teachers because I can tell you in my state, mm-hmm. if you uh, work in, you know, in some of the wealthier uh, school districts, the teachers make more money. You know, so where do the teachers want to want to work? They want to work in Montgomery County. They don't want to work in Baltimore City or PG County right. because they're going to make less money or, or in rural Western Maryland, uh, where there are a lot of working class white kids. They don't they don't want to work th- in those places. So. Just like we don't want to take the talent out of those schools, you know, in terms of the student body, we need experienced, talented 
teachers to make more money in those struggling schools and struggling school districts. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there's a lot of fixes when it comes to education. Mm -hmm. One of them I think is in Build Back Better. And I think that is to get kids educated earlier. If you go to the school that my kid goes to, everybody went to preschool because their parents shelled out, you know, $1,200 a month or however much it was, or $2,000 a month to get their kids that preschool education. Uh -huh. But if you go to some of the poor areas, those kids, like I said, are going into kindergarten classrooms, not knowing what hit them because they don't, their parents are working. They don't know, you know, letters and numbers and, and all of those things um, that would get them interested in school and they get frustrated. And that frustration literally lasts throughout their school education. And I think we can fix that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, as, as usual, you've, you've always got me thinking because there's a lot, a lot more to do uh, talk about with uh, saving our nation, of course. Yeah. But in the meantime, well, I want to tell people that, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say you got me thinking too. And uh, one of the things I'm thinking about is how broad your shoulders are looking in that grunt style t-shirt. Um, yes, buddy. Okay. So grunt style, let me think about this grunt style company. You familiar with grunt style, Jason? I am familiar with grunt style. Okay, good. So, okay, let's good. get, so let's get our audience you. familiar and make their I don't need to tell like you that. Let me tell everybody else that Jason already knows about this. Grunt <laughs> style is this fantastic apparel company. I just saw an air force buddy of mine this weekend and I was wearing my grunt style swag. So I'm like, man, I like that shirt grunt style. And I was like, yes. I was like, how did you know? And he's like, I love grunt style. I wear grunt style all the time. And I was like, dude, it's the best. And, uh, one of the reasons they're the best is because they support Vincent Jason Save the Nation. That's critical. And another reason is because their shirts are legit awesome. They're just cool. Right. You don't need to be a veteran to wear them. Tons of different like American and military themed stuff. They've got stuff that's just like grilling themed and, and drinking beer and, and going fishing. Like, you know, just stuff that like American dudes like, honestly. Right. That's really, and they support veterans too. Yeah, and they've got hundreds of veterans that work for them, over 200, and they've got hundreds of other of American employees broadly. Uh, so anyway, it's a great company. It's got yeah. cool stuff. Honestly, my wife checked it out this weekend. This is not, I swear to you, this is nothing to do with just the show. It's just like, we were talking about grunt style. She's like, oh, I should check to see if they have women's stuff. They have tons of women's stuff. It's right. awesome. Yeah, um, I mean, and it's she an amazing, amazing company. They also, you know, support, uh, mental health for, for veterans. Yeah. Um, and you can get a discount, I believe if you put, uh, gruntstyle.com backslash STN, is that correct? Yeah. You just enter the promo code STN for save yeah. the nation at gruntstyle.com and they'll give you 10% off your order, which is yeah. Shout out, great. shout out to Gruntstyle. You know, it, it's a great apparel company, but let's get back to saving the nation. Oh yeah. All right. Let's see. I've got, I've got more clips for you here. Uh, I want to play for you. Uh, Chris Christie this week, big old Chris Christie on ABC. Chris Christie. Uh, and he had this to say, take a look, it was about Joe Biden. It's the death of 2020 Joe Biden. When he went to the Hill, 2020 Joe Biden is now officially dead and buried. Oh. The guy who ran against the progressives, ran against Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, ran to be a uniter in this country, ran saying he was going to force compromise. And he went up to Capitol Hill and he capitulated to the progressives, the liberals in his party. And why should we be surprised? He couldn't stand up to the Taliban. How could we expect him to stand okay. up to AOC? Okay, so, so, so look... Don, that's a partisan take, to be sure. Wait, 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 let but, me ask you a question. Me, hold on a second. Yeah. Did he stand up to the Taliban? 
Why is that partisan? He wasn't. He hasn't stood up to anyone except for the people in his own party who nominated him. Donald Trump invited the Taliban. Bernie Sanders didn't vote for him. Donald Trump was inviting the Taliban to Camp David. Oh, I know. Donald Trump, by the way, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, in case you didn't know, Donald Trump's, by the way, Donald Trump's not in the White House anymore. And Joe Biden is kind of in the White House. Joe Biden has created more jobs in the first couple of months of his presidency than any other president. And more inflation. Thank you. He inverted inflation was already but, coming but, down but, the sure pipe. But, but Donna, he, and, and look, th- this notion, and look, I'm sorry that you have to cover this, Rachel and, and, and Rick, okay? They're okay. They, I, they, they, I, I, they're, I've been in a room with Democrats all my life, <laughs> and I still look good, okay? Yes, you sometimes bleed in the middle of a fight, but when you're fighting for principles, these are principles, bedrock principles that Democrats believe that we help people, that we take them out of harm's way, that we provide them with education oh, and job. But this is these, why we're these Democrats. These bedrock principles lost in the Democratic primary. But, 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 what oh. Bernie Sanders was just arguing, oh. and Elizabeth Warren lost in the Democratic primary. Joe Biden said they I mean, were not, extreme. I mean, not, they not were really. Extreme. Not, not really. No. Joe I mean, Biden say Bernie you Sanders you was extreme. Really, well, 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 Bernie Sanders was, was fighting on Medicare for all. That's not yes. part of this. There's a whole. But, but, but let me ask you. To, to, we're going to lower the pursuit. Prescription drugs, prices, to, to medicine, the, to the larger and point, that's bad. To the larger point, though, why wouldn't Biden want to take the victory? Uh, A one point five because they promised. You're right. They promised the moderates. That's that a lot of money, by the way. One point five yeah. plus one point five plus one point nine in January. And you want me to count up all of the one point nine trillion guess, tax cuts? And guess what? Those down? taxes, by the way, look, doesn't even count. I would need a camper even, to deal with I, that. I understand that, that you want the American people yeah. to give their money rather than keep look, it themselves. Look, I get no, that. That's we're, fine. We're, no, we, you we, can we, spend it better. We, no. All right, that was a hell of a table with Chris Christie and Donna Brazil sitting there. Yeah, that was fun. I kind of like that that conversation that they were having. Uh, again, I mean, I don't expect, uh, you know, Chris, you know, Camel Toe, uh, Christie to, oh to always be, I'm just joking, Chris, I actually, you know, enjoy Chris Christie. I think he's, you know, I think he's a smart guy. I don't think he's always honest, uh, but I think he's a smart guy. And, um, you know, he's fun. He's fun to watch on TV. He's he's a fierce debater unless he's facing Donald Trump. Then all of a sudden he turns into to silly putty, kind of like his um, his body fat percentage. But um, no, I'm just, just joking. Again, I like Chris Christie. I think he's funny. Um, and I'm sure he would take the, my comments in stride. Um, but I, I, you know, I think he's being a little disingenuous there. The whole thing with the Taliban was dumb. Um, funny, but dumb. Uh, that's, you know, that's just being disingenuous. Um, and, and in terms of the, the debate and the discussion going on amongst Democrats, to me, that's what, that's what politics should be about. That's what it what it all should be about. That's why we, you and I have these conversations. I know this. I seem like I I feel like I do this every week. Yeah. But we should be talking with people that we disagree with, and we should be negotiating from time to time. And there are times where we should stand on principle. And all of those things are happening within the Democratic Caucus right now. I'm actually pretty proud to be a part of that caucus. Well, not you know in Congress, but pretty proud that that they're actually having these discussions. They're actually going through this. And it's kind of sad that Republicans don't want to be a part of it. Um, I wish that they actually wanted to get in to the ring and actually have these discussions uh, with Democrats instead of saying, hey, pass it on your own. Well, some did. I mean, that's why they're that's why they created that infrastructure package together. Uh, Yeah, I thought that was great. So there is that. But 
This, you know, I, Christie's point is an interesting one. So yes, it's not Medicare for all that Joe Biden's pushing right now, but you know, he's he's governing much closer to Bernie Sanders than he is to 2020 campaign Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden was trying to run as a guy who said that we need to tap the brakes, like we need we shouldn't we shouldn't go as far anywhere near as close to Bernie Sanders, and of course by extension Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. And it does seem, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know how you view this, but it does seem that his priorities are basically most of the the most left wing elements of his party. Uh, most of those priorities, and certainly a five trillion dollar social spending and infrastructure package, all to, all in, um, is is an ex- is a massive expansion of the government's role in our lives, and the kind that Bernie Sanders would be interested in seeing. No, I, I, well, you know, it's funny because I was I was working as a surrogate for a particular political candidate at one point, um, presidential candidate, and. You know, the interesting thing, I was at a, a discussion uh, and Chris Dodd was there, former mm-hmm. senator, and he was representing Biden. And I was kind of standing on this, this hill that was like, look, you have to stand on principle. You can't always, you know, you can't capitulate. And his whole thing was, look, we have similar principles, but we're willing to negotiate because that's the only way you get things done. And I think that's the Biden approach. So they put this out there, $3.5 trillion. Um, They let, you know, put it out as a feeler. This is what we want. And then they knew they weren't going to get it all. You know, uh, progressives were really excited because they're like, wow, you know, Joe Biden is with us. But I think the moderates understand Joe Biden is a Biden is a moderate. And it was kind of like a, we know you're not going to get it all. We're going to, you know, pare this down. Um, it'll probably end up being $2 trillion over 10 years, which is part of the conversation that never seems to see the light of day is that this is not $2 trillion tomorrow. It's $2 trillion over a decade. Um, and so, you know, there are also a lot of ways, you know, if you look at what Ale- Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said, there are a lot of ways that they can do this um, that they can come to a compromise. They needed a little more time. Joe Biden gave them the off ramp. And I think he's actually, when it comes to this domestic policy um, with his within his Democratic caucus, I think he's actually managing it pretty well. I think these criticisms, you know, are people, as, as Puff Daddy would say, play hating from the sideline. You know, I think he's actually doing a good job of, of bringing together two sides that approach and see the world relatively differently and and maybe can reach a compromise. And I think that that is because Republicans are already saying, we don't want any part of it. You know, we don't want to be a part of the compromise, uh, which is really sad. I mean, they're, they're saying, do it on your own. Um, and, you know, they don't want to be in the conversation, even though they've been invited to it. And I think he's doing it with the people who are in front of him and he's doing a good job managing it. Yeah, I mean, but Republicans, they don't want to be a part of the, the social spending package, but the infrastructure bill, sure. you know, again, which is not even really that, I mean, only a small percentage of it is traditional infrastructure. There's a lot of spending in there that really serves to be kickbacks for all of the senators who negotiated it. If you look through, you'll see things that are specifically dedicated to Utah and Mitt Romney's you know, state and, and on and on. It's like each of these senators got some little carve out for themselves. So, you know, we're looking really in the vicinity of $100 billion, which is, which is you know, less than 10% of the package. 
that is dedicated to uh, traditional roads and bridges and railways. Um, but that said, that's where you are seeing some support from Republicans, obviously. But, you know, everyone, the, the left has tethered the rest of this, the social spending priorities to the infrastructure package. And I, and I think that that's a real problem for the country, that, that you don't get to have your federal infrastructure spending unless we get all of this other stuff. It's a hell of an ultimatum. And which is why you get, you're getting obvious questions. You're like, wait a second, why can't you just take a solid deal? Why can't we have, I mean, it's, it's you know, remember when those Republicans walked in and negotiated this with Biden in the first place, they were under the impression that this bill was going to be a standalone package, a package that was considered on its own merits and then voted up or down on that basis. That's not what happened in the wake of that. Democrats decided, no, what we need is this three and a half trillion dollar package as well. And uh, the first one doesn't get passed unless the second one does. And so that's where we are as of this week. Um, those two bills theoretically live or die together based on what Nancy Pelosi and company are saying. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say, you know, that Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. And, you know, I, I, again, I just want to uh, give a shout out to I, two people who I think are good. I've never met Chris Christie, but I really like him on TV. I think he's I think he's a funny guy. I think he's witty. And, you know, maybe it's because I watch many Saints of Newark. Like, <laughs> I, I really have an affection for Jersey folks right now. So uh, he's a Jersey guy. Um, so, you know, shout out to him. And of course, I love Donna Brazil. Donna Brazil is just an incredible, sweet person. And I'll just really quickly tell you this quick anecdote. Um, before my my aunt was, uh, you know, very sick and was near death. Uh, but she wanted to go to the opening of the uh, National Museum of African American culture, history and culture, where mm -hmm. we, our family actually donated some things. And so they had a big gala and there were all these stars there. And I won't mention a couple of stars who, you know, my, my aunt wanted to meet that one of them blew us off. And I, I won't say this person's name. It took me a long time <laughs> to get over my anger about that because, wow. you know, she didn't know that my aunt was like breathing her last death. She died 30 days later. No, but Donna Brazil was the sweetest, kindest person. She hugged my aunt. They took pictures. We sat at their, we sat at the same table and she prayed for her. And so I will always, always have a place in my heart for Donna Brazil. And I will always stand up for Donna Brazil. So shout out to Chris Christie, those weight jokes, you know, I'm not a fat shamer. I, you know, and I think you're, I think you're good on TV and I enjoy you. But um, one thing I also enjoy is again, Gold Co., if you have a qualifying account, I believe they're going to give you up to $10,000 worth of silver. Um, they're a great company. They are rated very highly. I think it's an A-plus rating from the uh, Better Business Bureau. Um, so definitely check out Gold Co. All right, Jason Nichols, thank you as always. It was great to, to spend some time with you on a Monday. We'll have to always. do it again very soon. Jason, uh, I appreciate that. This is Vincent Jason Save the Nation. You can get it anywhere. You can get a podcast. Make sure to subscribe, like, comment, and share on YouTube as well. That's on the Daily Caller YouTube channel. And uh, make sure other people get a chance to see it. Jason Nichols, thank you. Thank you. And I also want to give a quick shout out to my man, Joe Bob. Check out Daily Caller Live yes. with Joe Bob. Uh, you know, his name is Joe. His name is Bob. You can trust those two names. That's right. And uh, he's got a great show. So check out Joe Bob. Uh, check out Daily Caller Live 
with Joe Bob. Fantastic. Uh, so many great things to tell you about. We'll have to do it again in the next program on Wednesday. See you soon. Thanks, Jason. Peace.